Hello, and welcome to Farmarama. This month, we're introduced to the importance of ecosystem architecture by a forest ecologist and wine grower. We hear from two researchers investigating a shift in how we understand our relationship with the natural world. From one where humans are in control, to one where we work with other life forms and biological processes to build human and ecosystem health. And we finish hearing one grower's experience of implementing regenerative techniques on her flower farm. Mimi Castile is a farmer, ecologist and winemaker. Mimi studied forest science and spent many years working with forest ecologies before returning to Oregon to set up Hopewell Farm and Vineyard. We asked Mimi why. She shares her thoughts on how she embraced redundancy and the importance of nurturing whole ecosystem agriculture as part of regenerative farming. My name is Mimi Castile. I'm from Hopewell Vineyards in the Willamette Valley of Oregon in the United States. And I am a regenerative wine farmer, but I also grow other things like vegetables and fruit crops and ideas. <laughs> we have a little animal flock too, and so it's a nice little family farm. I actually, my, my background and my advanced degrees are in forest biology and systems biology. So I thought I wanted to be a wildland ecologist researcher. And when I was doing that work outside out of graduate school, it was very clear to me that the gradual dissolution and the gradual weakening of those areas was exclusively due to the surrounding privately held land bases. And it was very clear to me that the way we're doing agriculture is what's threatening the last of our wild areas. And having grown up on a, a vineyard, I made a choice to go to where I thought the front lines were, would try to change agriculture from the inside. So I went back to farming and winemaking, and that was whew, back in 2005. So it's been almost 20 years and eventually started my own project and my own farm. But it was really to explore the ideas that were in my head about how we could build systems that make permeable barriers between our farms and our, eco our native ecosystems and allow for greater flow and greater strength and resilience. Biological systems want to have redundant features if you think about, you know, even our own bodies, we have a lot of, especially bilateral redundancy. So you don't have one eye, you have two, because if one eye gets hit with a rock, you have another eye that can help you get around. And the same is true in all biological systems. They are constantly being challenged and creating redundant pathways for those processes to continue. And in the simplification of the landscape, in order to do agriculture the way that we think it's most efficient to produce one crop, even with good agricultural practices, we're missing out on a whole slew of pathways for energy to enter and exit our farms. Here, there would definitely have been trees on the landscape and agriculture has largely, largely in, you know, in the conversion process, removed trees 
to make space for crops. Those trees functionally on the landscape are more than just carbon storage mechanisms. They are, you know, habitat in and of themselves, but they also are physical pumps taking both water and micronutrients from deep, deep layers in the soil, pushing them into the leaves, trapping them in the leaves. Some of those leaves fall down, and that's how the cycling of deep micronutrients is facilitated on a, na a natural landscape. When we remove those trees, not only are we changing the hydrological features of these landscapes and sort of diminishing the hydrological capacity of those landscapes, not just to bring water down, but also to take water up. And I think that this is one of the things we need to start talking more about when we are redesigning our farmed landscapes is how is water supposed to make it into drier inland continental landscapes if there are no trees? That creates real problems and, and sort of allows inroads for processes like desertification. It's not just a tree there for storing carbon. The tree is there to deeply cycle water and nutrients and bring water to inland continental landscapes. On our farm, one of the first things that, that I set about doing was planting intentional through ways of trees, if you will. I mean, wildlife corridors is sort of what we call them, but the, the function of them is really is so multivaried that a wildlife corridor doesn't really capture it. But within the farm, making space for that architectural piece and then the shrub layer as well really has actually facilitated a greater water holding capacity and a greater flow of water through this property than was here before. There's an iconic tree in, in the state of Oregon, Quercus gariana, the Oregon white oak, which has, at least heretofore, had very little commercial value and no protection or legislation. So, you know, in, in America, the way that we value trees is whether or not, A, they have um, a place in the market, and then B, whether or not they've been um, given some protected status. And so the conversion of land in our little valley here has been at the expense to a large degree of these iconic stately oak trees. And I think we have fundamentally missed their importance on the landscape, not just for all of those things I was talking about earlier, but for our own cultural understanding of why the aesthetics of a landscape actually do have value and why our farming needs to, I think, make, make room for the aesthetic of a healthy landscape. The idea behind the Oak Accord was really to gather landowners and intervene early on before they've removed every tree on their property and explain to them the benefits to their crops of leaving those trees on farm. You change your footprint a little bit, but it comes with so many benefits that far outweigh the cost of that square footage that you give up by removing trees or even whole entire corridors of trees. There are good reasons to think about leaving those behind. I visited Mimi's Vineyard and it is incredibly beautiful. 
a complex ecosystem with lots of wildlife and beautiful oak trees and really great wine. <laughs> it definitely doesn't look anything like a conventional picture of a vineyard. When Mimi first shared about the importance of redundancy, I immediately reacted. I realized that for me, the word redundant is only negative. But as she so quickly pointed out, redundancy is a key part of resilience, as the human body shows us, and so much more. And I think interesting to ask questions like, you know, can redundancy be part of efficiency? Or maybe efficiency is the wrong focus when exploring systems that work in the long term and that build a more beautiful and ecological future. Professor Jamie Lorimer is an environmental geographer at the University of Oxford. Jamie's research explores the histories, politics and cultures of wildlife conservation. He just published a book called The Probiotic Planet. Jamie talks about the probiotic turn and how that relates to regenerative agriculture and rewilding. He's joined by Dr. George Cusworth, whose work specifically focuses on farmers thinking in the UK about including beans and pulses in the management of their farming systems. The book that I've just written, uh, which is called The Probiotic Planet, um, is interested in some profound shifts that are underway in how life is conceived and managed. And the probiotic turn uh, is characterized by efforts by scientists and by, by citizens and by farmers to use life to manage life. So using keystone species, be they earthworms, be they wolves, be they particular microbes, to reset systems that are in some sense of dysbiosis, where the ecology has gone awry uh, and they're no longer working as they should. And we need to understand the probiotic turn as a response to the problems associated with an antibiotic way of managing life. And an antibiotic way of managing life is characterized by efforts to reduce uh, the complexity of ecological systems, to smooth the running of ecological systems, to accelerate the ways in which ecological systems work in the interest of producing more food, in the interest of maximizing human health and, and, and well-being. And clearly there's been great benefits with the antibiotic model but we're increasingly seeing that the excessive application of antibiotic modes of managing life is creating conditions of blowback. Anything from increases in, in antimicrobial resistance in humans and, and, and in livestock, pesticide resistance in agricultural systems, but right the way up to concerns about extreme flooding events because of the ways we've rationalized river systems or the ways in which we get extreme fire events because of the ways in which we've rationalized forests right the way up arguably to uh, to climate change and, and concerns about the Anthropocene and the planet tipping out of the of the Holocene. So the probiotic turn is a response to that uh, and it's marked by these common ways of understanding and, and, and managing life. Much of the work in the book looks at the rise of rewilding. Conservation has been very preoccupied with protecting rare species, um, but there's a shift in conservation now towards a focus on keystone species that will, by being given more agency, create habitats that are better for biodiversity, but also deliver ecosystem services. Um, and we can begin to think of the ways in which that model of rewilding is coming to interface with developments in agriculture. So conservation and agriculture, which have often seen to be oppositional to each other, uh, we see the ways in which farmers are revisiting older ways of understanding the role of, of particular organisms in landscapes 
as well as engaging with new science around the microbiome, let's say, to begin to use particular organisms to address some of the problems with antibiotic modes of, of managing life. Uh, we have this renewed rethinking of the role of cows as potential keystone species and, and, and herbivore grazing as a way of enabling soil health improvement, but also shifts in terms of how we think about crop rotations and the role of particular crops in improving soil fertility or changes in the way we think about the role of pest control, where you might use the predators of particular pests in order to control pests other than using you know, pesticides. You can cast your way back to various different points in time as an authentic model in which you might manage agriculture towards. And yet what we know about climate change and the Anthropocene is that the future is going to be unlike the past. So we're quite interested in the ways in which different ideas about nature and particular different ideas about the pastoral, if you like, the appropriate relationship between people and livestock are coming to shape contemporary debates about the future place of livestock in the British countryside uh, in terms of you know, the, the, the relative number of animals in the countryside, the ways they should be managed, the idea that there is a naturalistic model of farming that could be could be simulated um, that rubs up against you know other debates that you read your listeners will be very familiar with about a kind of vegan model which sees you know cows as the problem uh, and we really need to radically move away from livestock. And so each of those finds different historic reference points to naturalize a future vision. And so part of our, our, our interest as social scientists is to look at those different stories and, and the different ways they come into conflict. I'm doing some work at the moment thinking about the ways in which a new metric, uh, GWP star, is beginning to anoint some of these ways of thinking, particularly in how the warming impacts of different greenhouse gases are communicated and understood in a climate governance context. Um, and I'm sure many of your listeners will know that methane is a short-lived gas, which means that it will only last in the atmosphere and exert its warming influence for about 10 years. Um, and GWP 100, which is the sort of standard metric used in, in climate governance, does a relatively poor job of communicating that. And as a result, it's argued that it uh, essentially overestimates the warming impact of methane and as a result, the warming impact of, of ruminant management. You know, for example, the great herds of bison roaming around the American plains produced as much methane, it is argued, as contemporary livestock emissions. And so they begin to sort of, there's a parity in the emissions and therefore the warming impact of those things. So I, I guess what we're now seeing is that the metrics and, and the ways of, of knowing environments um, beginning to sort of provide the framework in which contemporary emissions can be seen as an inheritance of wild ecologies. I mean, we have a paper that's in preparation, which partly picks up on the story that uh, James Rebanks develops in the, in the English pastoral about a sort of intergenerational shift in British farming. He talks about his, his grandfather, who was you know, using a very traditional system of farming, and how over his grandfather's life course, farming gets modernized and rationalized, and we get the separation of elements of the farming system and, and the kind of intensification of, of farming, particularly in the Lake District, um, and how he now sees himself as very much pulling historical techniques of, of British agriculture into the present, particularly around different ways of revisiting cropping regimes and crop types. And George was doing some work, not in the Lake District, but in, in the sort of English-Welsh borders, 
looking at shifting um, cropping practices amongst farmers there, driven by this interest in legumes in particular um, and, and their potential role in the farming system. Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously, legumes have a great capacity to draw down and fix nitrogen into the soil, but they also make for, for good feed and forage for grazing animals. So, you know, whereas in America, you might want to situate your historical baseline against this sort of great roaming uh, herds of bison. In England, actually, there's a long history of rotating grass legume mixes with arable production as a way of, sort of cycling uh, nutrients around farm, not, not just as a way of, sort of minimizing and reducing the amount of fertilizer you need to use, but also a way of achieving feed self-sufficiency. So all of those long and complicated supply chains related to feed production from soy in South America, you can actually begin to produce your own foods through your own sort of closed loop nutrient systems. Uh, and like Jamie says, legumes emerge as this sort of um, relatively unfashionable crop, I would say, you know, it's not a hugely sort of hip food stuff to be eating, beans and legumes. But, you know, when we're thinking about using historical baselines as a way for justifying contemporary agricultural management practices uh, in the UK, legumes emerge as this very important thing. And I mean, I guess one other element that came out of that uh, in the context of the rise of plant-based eating that we're seeing as very much a consumer trend was the different ways in which that appetite for legumes could go, isn't it? So one was towards a kind of whole foods model where people very much knew where their legumes came from and there were local supply chains versus the kind of legume becomes a generic protein substance, if you like, that just gets lost in a, in a kind of wide commodity chain and different visions for the future of legumes along those very different trajectories of you know, what could be described as a regenerative turn in agriculture could take take place. You know, one that's quite similar to mainstream commodity supply chains, another that's much more akin to the kind of local agricultural supply chains that we'd associate with you know, strands of community supported agriculture or even some versions of organic agriculture. Yeah, there's nothing inherent about the legume as a crop type and as a crop family that means it's going to be a sort of act of resistance against an industrialized, international, intensified model of agriculture that, like Jamie says, we can imagine eating legumes either as a sort of whole food that you know the producer and there's, you know, for example, fava beans, and I'm sure you your listeners will be familiar with hubbardods, but there's a great resurgence of wanting to grow these, you know, traditional high protein foodstuffs uh, in English soils. But like, you know, they're also the sort of the bog standard white flowers used to prop up uh, highly processed vegan foodstuffs. So, you know, there's nothing inherent about legumes, but it is uh, an interesting sort of lens through which to look at different futures of agricultural change. I guess as a geographer, um, I'm always interested in how developments in one place relate to developments in, in other places. And certainly if we're thinking about the um, the rise of rewilding, let's say, in, in temperate areas in Europe and, and North America and the abandonment of marginal farming in, in many areas that's enabled this resurgence of wildlife and, and the reforestation of many parts of the world, Arguably, that's happened because of the globalization of, of agriculture. And so we've outsourced the supply of many of the things that would once have been grown on that land to, to tropical regions, also enabled by the intensification of, of farming in sort of more fertile areas. But we need to think about whether there's a net rewilding underway or just a redistribution of the wild on a global scale. So we get more wild in the north, less wild in the tropics. 
And then from a social justice perspective, we need to think about who are the beneficiaries of that in terms of the publics who have access to that wild and the publics who are exposed to deforestation, exposed to all the consequences of that of that locally. And, and likewise, if we think about it in relation to having the ability to control one's microbial exposure on the micro scale, which is, if you like, what the probiotic turn suggests is that people can selectively cultivate desirable exposures to good microbes while keeping the bad microbes at bay. There's not many parts of the world where we have that degree of control over microbial exposure. So although we might you know, celebrate the rise of you know, fermentation practices and the interest in uh, dietary movements that are about cultivating gut health, we need to think about the degree to which those are accessible to everybody in places where you've got you know, very poor sanitation, you've still got lots of infectious disease, you know, where you can't take water quality for, for granted, let's say. So there's, a, again, a, a, an unequal global geography as to where that probiotic turn might be, might be playing out. Just to, to add to Jamie's list of uh, research questions we're interested in, I think the, the future of particularly regenerative agriculture and its changing relationship with uh, big corporate agribusiness, there's an awful lot of interest being shown by Nestle and by Danone and by Burger King. Um, and to what extent this sort of corporate capture and involvement is going to shape um, the, the movement over the next five or 10 years? I really don't necessarily mean that that's for the worst. The fact that a great number of farmers who are involved in their supply chains are going to be exposed to their new requirements for purchasing policies it is quite an exciting opportunity, but it does also carry with it a number of potential perils as well. So I think that's something that we're very much interested in, in seeing how, how all of these you know promises being articulated by these agricultural movements, will which of them will get preserved and which of them will get um, shelved and which of them will get prioritised to you know, to service the different objectives that these big businesses have for their own participation. What we're very hopeful to do over the next phase of our research is to begin a substantial piece of work on regenerative agriculture and to begin to explore uh, that as a manifestation of the probiotic turn uh, in agriculture in, in the UK. Uh, and we'd obviously be very keen to hear from uh, your listeners who are very much at the forefront of driving this change. So if we come and tap you up and ask for an interview, please uh, please say yes uh, when, uh, when you hear from us. The Soil Collective is a community of chefs, florists and growers committed to an ethical way of working with seasonal produce, advocating for positive ecological change in our food, flower and farming systems. One of the co-founders is Liv Wilson, who runs British flower studio, Weatherly. We asked Liv to share with us about her experience of shifting to more regenerative techniques in her flower farming. The Soil Collective is a community of florists and chefs um, founded by two florists, myself and Jessica Geisendorfer and a chef, Lulu Cox. Um, Jess and I met when we were freelancing as florists and we became really disenchanted and upset basically by the, the use of imported flowers in floristry. Um, and we both started growing our own and we wanted to support each other in that and then Jess introduced me to Lulu, who is a longtime friend, um, who is a chef. And we started thinking about how important it was to have a conversation which also included food. 
because so often in events, the food might be really considered, it might be all from local producers, but the flowers on the table were imported. Um, and so we set up saw in order to be able to create a more full circle conversation about seasonal produce. So when you're thinking about an event, everything is considered. Making sure that I'm giving back to the land as much as the land is giving me has become more of a primary consideration for me. I've made that more of a goal into the terms of the way that I grow in those fields, trying to improve the soil as much as possible and leave real designated areas for pollinators. What it means is that more of my time is spent thinking about what impact that's having and trying to learn more things about what I can do to make a better, more, more positive impact. Um, Jess and Lulu, when they started growing, they started with this intention right from the beginning. So they they started growing flowers in a polytunnel and immediately they really had, they, the first thing they had to do was improve the soil quality because it had been farmed previously in a conventional way. And so their first aim was to improve the soil before they could even set about growing flowers whereas for me it's I've been having to learn a lot and rethink about a lot of the ways I've been growing things because I think at the start my idea of improving the soil was just to put more compost on or more manure on it every year and I've, I've learned a lot that there's it's a lot more complex than that and you really need to think about exactly what nutrients the soil needs the first things were definitely um, green manures and cover crops because I, <laughs> I mean, used to find weeds really stressful and I used to want it to look tidy and so would try my best to get rid of weeds and I think in a way that was unnecessary. Obviously, there are some weeds that are really um, not useful, you know, sort of noxious weeds, but a lot of the other weeds, if the soil is covered, then that's actually a lot more beneficial to the soil. It stops soil erosion, it wasting away. And also they are often doing, you know, depending on the weed, but they're often doing positive things for the soil anyway. So learning to try and replace my weeding habits with planting cover crops, um, that would, mean that I didn't have to weed so much so it was a kind of a double benefit um but also that they would specifically be doing good things for the soil that was one of the first things that I did obviously it's good to have like polycultures there's lots of different types at the same time they all do different things some are better at nitrogen fixing some are better at their tap roots breaking up the soil and other than providing carbon so it's good to have a mix um so basically it just means that also in between sowings if you've got a bed that's not got anything in it rather than just leave it bare, even though that might look tidy or, you know, you might think that's okay. It's better to just put something in that's short growing and then you can leave it, leave it there, then dig it back into the soil afterwards. And that just means that there's no, never a time when you're leaving the soil um, barren, I suppose. It generally feels really exciting and it just it feels so lovely when you look at the cover crops and you see how vibrant the greens are and you just you can just almost see in the colour that they're doing something positive to the soil and then looking at the soil afterwards. I recently really excited to try growing salvia with roses because apparently that keeps fungal diseases at bay in roses and also they attract lots of insects like aphids so that were the two issues that I have with roses that are aphids and black spots so I'm really excited to try that out and I feel like the learning experience of finding out all these things which people you know have known for a really long time but it's just not necessarily been at the forefront in the way people have been thinking about 
farming flowers in a commercial way. The challenging thing in terms of the cover crops and stuff is that when they go to seed, they go everywhere and it makes things, it can make things harder to um, harvest. Jess and Lulu, I think, definitely had that problem with the tulips. They had really incredible um, clover in between their tulips. And I think it really, it was just, was so happy there that it, um, it made it more difficult to harvest. So that's one thing. Another thing I think is sowing at the right time for me anyway. I certainly had that a couple of times when I... Last year, I just sowed it was, and I think it's to do with the, the conditions of winter, and then they didn't really happen. So it meant that things were actually left better than I hoped. In general, it just seems like a positive thing to do, actually. And people are so helpful. Cotswold Seeds as well. They're amazing. They have got so much wealth of information, and they're really readily available to support. One of the things about regenerative farming and the principles behind it is doing things in a way which is also positive basically so not trying to run before you can walk and really doing things slowly and manageably and I think that's definitely something that we have tried to take on in our um, business practices I think also having a uh, an ethical mindset when it comes to how we work with people and who we work with and you know valuing people's time and those kind of things and I think that the whole ethos of regenerative farming I think that really transitions well into how you're approaching starting a a business or or anything that you do for somebody who wants to start growing flowers commercially what what would you say would be the best place or best places to start well firstly no dig beds because not um disturbing the soil too much is really important and it's really easy to create um no dig beds there's so much advice on the internet um charles dowding is a great person to look at as well so that would be a good place to start secondly is something that we're looking into more this year and it is more challenging is thinking about where you get your seeds from and you know are they organic and that kind of thing that's that's a really important thing to do there are lots of natural fertilizers um which you can use like seaweed um which are hugely beneficial there's absolutely no need to put anything chemical on your flowers at all Um, Another thing I'd say is just reaching out to the community because the community is so friendly and supportive and willing to help each other, which is one of the most amazing things. And people really do have a wealth of knowledge to share. Do you know what? I think you you really don't need a huge amount of space, actually. It depends really what your market is and what you're wanting to grow for. Because if you want to grow for yourself to use for weddings and events and then sometimes it's really nice to have lots of variety but you really can grow in a garden I grow I think it's just under three quarters of an acre is what I currently cultivate at the moment you know I think that's that's pretty large space actually although I am looking to expand because I just love flowers too much and there are more varieties that I want to grow I think the conversations about people thinking about their food is, is, is really positive, that's happening a lot. But the same conversation is still only just beginning, I think, um, in terms of flowers. And actually, when you think about imported flowers in a supermarket, they have the highest carbon footprint almost of any product. Um, and it's just, there's, it's just, I mean, it's not just to do with the carbon footprint as well. There's so many other ethical issues. A lot of it does come, come down to issues of demand. I think it's, it's unreasonable for us or consumers to want to expect to have flowers all year round it's not natural you don't see flowers 
or many flowers at least during the winter and there's beautiful foliages and things that you can use flowers are a luxury and they're beautiful to have and you know they bring so much positivity but it's just essential that the our consumption of flowers also has a positive impact so i think that's why it's really great to have more conversations about intercropping and cover cropping and all the kind of other things that you can do um tiny changes that really actually don't take more time but have huge impact yeah, I think it's it, the more conversations we have, the more people adopt these kind of practices, the more the more normal it will be. And it will be that all flower farms in the UK are grown in this way, hopefully. That would be the dream. This episode was made by Abby Rose, Susie McCarthy, Olivia Oldham and me, Joe Barrett. We're really grateful for those of you who support us and allow us to bring you these stories every month. Even the smallest contribution makes a massive difference to us. If you'd like to become a supporter, visit patreon.com forward slash farmerama. A big thanks to the rest of the Farmerama team, Katie Revel, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins and Dora Taylor. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett.